Good morning, everybody. My name is Alex Barthet. I am a board certified construction lawyer here in the state of Florida. And today we're going to talk about how to stop work if you're not getting paid. So let's go through the agenda and then dive right in. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to define what the problem is. Um, that is, what's it, what's it mean not to get paid? We're going to then talk about what your contract terms are. Um, we're going to talk about the absolute critical importance of securing your lien and bond rights. And we're going to check for any guarantees because guarantees on your payment obligations are going to be critical in determining whether or not you have uh, certain other obligations that are going to get triggered if you stop working. If you bonded the job, we're going to talk about why it's important to talk to your surety. Then we're going to talk about documentation. Documentation is absolutely critical. And then at the last step, step number seven, we're going to talk about getting ready for the fight. Okay, so let's talk about what the problem is. Um, so you're on a project, you're not getting paid. Um, so you believe that no matter what, maybe in your contract or what Florida law requires, that if you're not getting paid, you have the right to stop work. Um, I have a lot of clients come to me and they tell me, well, Alex, I haven't been paid in three months. I'm just going to stop work. I'm not going to keep working if I'm not getting paid. Um, and then I, I tell them about the things that I'm about to tell you. And, and they say, well, I didn't even know that that was the problem. I didn't know that I couldn't stop work. I assumed even when I signed my contract, the law always permitted me to have the right to stop work. Um, and that is not the case. So the next thing you need to do, once you realize, wait a second, I need to stop working because I'm not getting paid. Um, you need to start by looking at your construction contract. What does your contract say with the person that hired you? Um, and the reason this is important is that many construction contracts include a contract provision that says, that you cannot stop work even if you are not getting paid. So let me repeat that just so everyone understands. Many contracts that you will sign will require you to keep working during any dispute, including a dispute over payment. So the provision will say something like, subcontractor shall diligently proceed with the work during any dispute, even as it relates to payment or changes the existence of a dispute shall not be grounds for any failure to perform by subcontractor. What does this mean? This means that no matter what, even if you're not getting paid, even if the change orders aren't getting signed, um, even if there are disputes on the job, you have to keep working. And that also means you have to keep paying your employees. You have to keep the job running. You have to continue paying for materials on the project. Um, most contracts that I see include a provision like this in your contract. So unless your contract is very short or you don't have a written agreement, 
most um, reasonably sophisticated owners and contractors and subcontractors are going to have provisions like this in their contract. On top of that, you may have a contract provision that requires that no, that you cannot stop work or that you are not entitled to payment um, if the contractor hasn't been paid by the owner. That's also known as a pay when paid provision. So if you have a pay when paid provision in your contract, that is not the legal basis. That, that is not a legal basis for you to stop working. So if the reason that you are not being paid is because the owner has not paid the contractor and you have a pay when paid provision in your contract, well, you don't have the legal basis to stop working. Um, so what does a pay when paid provision look like? It usually has the words condition precedent or contingent upon. So it will say something like payment from the owner is a condition precedent to payment to subcontractor. Or it could say payment to subcontractor is contingent upon contractor's receipt of payment from the owner. So those bold words, condition precedent or contingent upon, are the magic language that the courts are going to look for to see that your um, contract has a pay when paid. So when you look at your contract, those are the two specific contract provisions that you need to focus on to see if you have a right to stop work. One, do you have a contract provision that pr precludes it? And two, do you have a pay when paid? And is the reason you're not being paid because the owner hasn't paid the contractor? Now, let me give you a bit of a pro tip here. While it won't help you in the midst of a dispute, it will help you the next time you negotiate a contract, and that is to include the a stop work provision. Specifically, that provision would say something like subcontractor can slow or stop work without liability or penalty if it, if it has not been paid its draw request within 30 days after submission. That is a sample provision. Um, I've seen them, you know, not just 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, but you know that there's some period of time that if you are not being paid, you have the unequivocal right to stop work. You should try to negotiate this into your contract the next time um, you are negotiating your contracts. Clients ask me, Alex, I really want this job. I know the contract is unfair. If there was only one change you could make, what would it be? And it, in my opinion, it is adding the right to stop work to your contract. I think it's absolutely imperative that you have that right. Let's talk about step number three, which is securing your rights with lien and bonds. So as you know, um, you have lien rights. And if you work on a project that is bonded by the contractor, you have rights against that payment bond. Um, as a quick refresher, because I always find it's good to, to review this with everybody, um, even those that know it um, or think they know it, the notice to owner needs to be served within 45 days of your first work or delivery of materials to the project. So in order to have lien rights, if you need to send a notice to owner, you need to make sure that that notice is received by the owner and the contractor no later than 45 calendar days from when you first work. You can send it before, it just can't be after. 
So when you use Sunray to, to do your notices, you want to make sure that those notices are timely uh, entered into the Sunray system so that they're processed well before the 45 days. Um, you need to record your claim of lien no later than 90 days from your last work or delivery of materials to the project. Uh, if you have a bond claim, a claim against a payment bond, you need to serve that notice of non-payment no later than 90 days. Again, this is 90 calendar days. You count all the weekends and legal holidays in between. If the 90th day happens to fall on a weekend or legal holiday, you go to the next day. Um, that, again, is the outside deadline that you need to serve this document for a bond claim or record the lien in the public records where the project is located. A couple of things to remember, 90 days is not three months. Again, if you're counting um, July 15th, August 15th, right? You're counting by months. Some months have more than 30 days. Some months have fewer than 30 days. You need to make sure that you're actually counting the number of days. Um, we talked about including weekends and legal holidays as you count. Um, also know that you can record or serve your record your lien or serve your notice of non-payment before you finish the work. So you don't have to wait until you're done with the job or done with your work in order to serve a lien or, or record a lien or serve a notice of non-payment. You can do it in the midst of the project. So sometimes we have clients that want to exert a little more leverage during the course of the project to get paid. So one of the things we would recommend is We'll go ahead and put a lien on the project today. Don't wait. Um, a few other things to keep in mind that the last work when you calculate 90 days does not include punch list or warranty work. It does, however, include any work pursuant to the your contract, um, including change order work, so long as that change order work was approved and ideally signed as a change order. Um, if you have a direct contract with the owner, so let's say I'm a plumber and the owner hires me directly, or I'm a general contractor and the owner hires me directly. Um, one of the other documents that you need to timely serve is called a contractor's final affidavit. And that needs to be served, not recorded, at least five days before the lawsuit is filed to foreclose on the claim of lien. So if I'm a general contractor, I've done work, I'm owed money on the project and I haven't been paid, um, I need to record my claim of lien no later than 90 days from my last work. And then at least five days before I file the lawsuit to foreclose on the claim of lien, I need to serve this document called the contractor's final affidavit. It's a simple form, typically one page, signed and notarized. And it says, I'm the contractor, you're the owner, and here are the, um, this is how much I'm owed, and here are the people that are still owed money. And then the last deadline you need to make sure you remember is that you need to file suit within one year of the recording date of the claim of lien or no later than one year from your last date of work on a payment bond claim. So notice that if you have a lien right, the time to, to file your lawsuit is a little bit longer because it's one year from the recording date of the claim of lien versus a bond claim where it's one year from your last work. Um, that being said, I do not recommend that you wait that long um, to bring your legal action to enforce your lien rights. Okay, so step number four, before you decide to stop working, um, check to see if there are any guarantees. 
have you personally guaranteed any money to anyone on this project? So if I'm a subcontractor, let's say I'm a mechanical subcontractor on a project, I may have um, ordered materials from a material supplier um, to get that material supply, those material supplies to the job. I may have had to have signed a credit application. And as part of that credit application, maybe I needed to sign personally to guarantee that debt. Um, those are the types of things you need to be aware of to make sure that you know exactly what rights um, you, what obligations you have in order to make sure that you when you take the step of stopping work, that you know anyone and everyone that may come after you and who they will come after, right? So you may say, well, it doesn't matter if I stop work and if everything goes to hell, you know, I'll just close the business. But, oh, wait a second, I actually personally guaranteed $250,000 worth of materials that are delivered to this job site. So if I stop paying, um, those those folks that have the guarantee are going to come after me. Um, again, it may not change your decision. The important thing is that you are aware of the situation. Step number five, if you bonded the job, you need to make sure you talk to your surety. Um, so as you know, um, some contractors, some owners will require the contractor to provide a payment and performance bond. Um, on some public work, it, it's, this is pretty common. On, on private work, it happens occasionally. Sometimes general contractors will require subcontractors to issue a bond um, back to them and sometimes even back to the owner. To the extent that you provided a payment and performance bond, you need to know that your surety on that bond may have an obligation if you stop working. So if you do not continue to work, the contractor or owner can make a claim against the surety's payment and performance bond. And that payment and performance bond surety is gonna step in. Now, as you may know, in order to get that payment and performance bond, you probably needed to personally guarantee that obligation to the surety. You and your spouse may have had that obligation. So if you're going to stop work, one, what are the obligations you have to your surety? And two, under no circumstances should you surprise your surety and just walk off the job. Sureties hate surprises. We have a client now that we're helping through this process. Um, they're on a, it's a general contractor on a multi-million dollar public project. And they are having significant issues with the public owner and uh, both payment and uh, just getting decisions made. And the job now is 18 months past its original completion date. Um, so the client is losing a lot of money just keeping the job rolling, um, barely, because hardly anything is happening. And the client and I are having this conversation about what does it look like for him to stop working? Um, and he bonded the job because it's a multi-million dollar public job. So we're talking about what his surety may do and the recourse that they have if he stops working and if the public owner makes a claim 
on his performance bond. Again, it may not change your mind. The important thing is that you do not find yourself in a situation where you are surprised about the situation. Um, oh, wait, had I known that the surety would have come after me, I would not have um, it stopped working. I would have kept going. So again, you just want to make sure you understand the process. Um, okay, step number six, document, document, document. It's absolutely critical that you have um, documentation of what has gone on on the project and why you are stopping work. The more documentation you have, the, the better off your situation is going to be. Do you have emails that talk about the problem? Do you have pictures? Do you have videos? Um, what do the meeting minutes say? Um, meeting minutes are a very interesting tool that can be used if you plan ahead. So as a general contractor, um, well, any contractor on a project, um, whoever is in control of the meeting minutes, that is whoever is the party that is creating the minutes has the ability to create the narrative because what will happen is 12, 18 months, 24 months later, when a court is actually looking at these meeting minutes, they are going to believe that what was what is referenced in the meeting minutes actually happened. So if so, there are two things you need to remember about meeting minutes. One, um, do the meeting minutes properly reflect what happened during the meeting? So sometimes things happen in the meeting that never show up in the meeting minutes. So when you get a copy of the meeting minutes after the meeting, um, you need to make sure that they are accurate. If you're not getting copies of the meeting minutes, either because you're not on the distribution list or no one's sending you those meeting minutes, you should send an email saying, hey, I was at this meeting, Please let me know who's sending out the meeting minutes so that I can review them. If no one is sending out meeting minutes, um, if you're not getting the meeting minutes, you need to send an email to the party that ran the meeting documenting the things that you believe are important that happened at the meeting. So effectively, you're creating your own set of meeting minutes and you're sending them back to the party that ran the meeting. Um, typically, that's the party that contracted you. So, um, and if you get meeting minutes that are incorrect, it is critical that you correct those mistakes. So, if they said that, you know, everyone said that they were going to show up over the weekend to work and they were going to bring at least five guys each, but actually in the meeting they said that you didn't have to because there was no work for you you get the meeting minutes and they don't reflect that, then you need to send an email that says, the meeting minutes do not correctly reflect that I was excused from this because of this, that, or the other thing. Having that clarification and some other paper trail of what your position is, is, I cannot stress this enough, absolutely critical to prove your case later. Finally, with respect to documentation, look at your contract and do all of the things that are required by the notice provisions in your contract. So if they say you have to send notice within 72 hours via certified mail, you need to make sure you do that. Um, if it has to go via email and overnight mail, no later than seven days, you have to do that. So look at your contract. And if you're going to put people on notice 
of any issue that happened during the job, you need to comply with those notice provisions, both res with respect to the timing of it, number one, and number two, with respect to the um, manner of service. Uh, you can serve it many additional ways, but if they say that, you know, John Smith has to receive it via certified mail at this address, you need to make sure that you can email it to anybody you want, but that person gets it the way the contract requires. And then the last step is step number seven, which is get ready for the fight. Um, when you are going to walk off a project, know that it's gonna create a lot of havoc. Um, it is a drastic move. Stopping work and demobilizing is a very drastic move and it should really only be used as an, as an absolute last resort. If you can avoid it, you should try to avoid it. Now that's easy for me to say here, um, I'm not the one that has to pay your payroll and write checks to your suppliers. Um, but if there's a way to uh, finish the project and have this fight later, it's better to do that. And the reason is, is that the moment you demobilize and stop working on the project, whoever hired you, whether that's the owner because you're the GC or um, the GC because you're a sub or the sub because you're a sub-sub, the, the amount uh, and uh, both volume and dollars of back charges you're going to receive is going to be exorbitant. Um, every little thing is going to get charged to you pursuant to uh, either the, your contract or just generally Florida law. So if, for example, you know, you had, you think you had $50,000 worth of work left to do, I wouldn't be surprised if you received back charges of close to $100,000. So just know that if you're close to the end of the job and you can get it done, our advice generally is to try to finish it and then have the fight because it will mitigate the damages that the other side is going to uh, assert against you. Um, you need to consult a legal expert in this field before you take the plunge. Um, I've had clients come to me and say, all right, Alex, I, uh, you know, I was really pissed. I was owed all this money and I walked off the job and, and here's the letter from the lawyer for the other side because I walked off three weeks ago. It's not that there's nothing we can do, but it's just a lot easier, a lot better. There's a lot more options we have if you go to a um, legal expert in this field before you pull the trigger rather than after. But if you decide to make the move and, and you're going to do this and you're gonna stop working, you just need to be ready for the legal fight that will come because it is highly unlikely that demobilizing from a job will result in the owner or contractor or subcontractor not pursuing you. It's possible, maybe they're holding enough money back and therefore it's not a big deal. Um, so they'll just back charge you and, they, and they're holding enough to, to make them whole. Um, and then you're not looking to get that money. You just want to be, you just want to move on. So there are ways that it may work. Um, but in my experience, most of the time when you walk off the job, there's going to be problems afterwards. But thank you very much. And I hope everyone has a wonderful day and rest of your week.